Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 19. If magic lessons take anyone to the library at any point, they're going to encounter Ioni Sala, who has now been healed in flesh, if not in spirit. Very shortly after being healed, Ioni Sala discovered that, as soon as she gets a couple of dozen steps away from the library, she starts to feel a pull, a faint tingle, which she can intuitively feel would start to weaken her abilities after a time and eventually rip her soul out of her body. She's going to need sleeping arrangements set up in here, or in a room connected to here, or for somebody to make her a bedroom that's also a library. And it doesn't feel like books are enough to make a place a library. People would need to be able to wander into her bedroom and read books there. Ioni also knows that she needs to occasionally read some of the books and get new books sometimes. They have to be books she actually wants to read. She can't just be doing it out of duty. Otherwise, she'll die. Oracles get curses, don't they? This curse isn't entirely a bad thing. It feels like Cheliax would have a hard time making there be a library that's also a torture chamber and force her to enjoy reading books while she'd rather have her soul torn away so that the pain stops, like it would be hard to torture her to death over years in a way that satisfies her curse. Maybe she couldn't easily be maledicted either, with the grip that libraries now have on her soul? Is her curse one that takes her straight to Nethys's afterlife? Is that why it feels like the curse would tear out her soul and not just kill her? Nethys, she's trying not to think thoughts like this, but they still bubble up in the back of her mind. Nethys may have a different attitude from Asmodeus about making sure that his own slaves, so long as they worked hard and did their best, get protected from sufficiently painful fates. No, she's being stupid. Nethys wants her to be less afraid of Asmodeus and Cheliax, obviously, so that she doesn't treat them as having equal power with Nethys to threaten her and force her obedience. She wishes she hadn't thought that. It's going to make Cheliax trust her less after the next time they read her mind. The problem is that Ioni is now living in such strange new circumstances that she doesn't know yet which paths of thought will lead her to dangerous places before she starts to think them. She does have to think now, and figure out what Nethys wants from her using her own wits. Nethys can't give her specific instructions because anybody Nethys touches goes mad. Ioni has been taught since childhood that nobody really cares about her or ever would care about her, except for how she's of use to them, especially the gods, who could help, but don't. It's pathetic to think that Nethys would give her that curse because Nethys cared about one tiny worm that didn't even ask to be his cleric. Lots of mortals in the world die agonizing slow deaths, and Nethys doesn't protect them. Asmodeus is the only god who has enough use for mortals in general, being competent, not just a few favored clerics, to make sure that children in Cheliax get an education. And while it has occurred to Ione that this is propaganda, it has also occurred to her that it cannot just be a complete lie. It's not like Nethys made her his oracle or helped her in any other way before she was in a position to be useful to him. But it's still a little warm. To have a master who took real, visible steps to protect her against the worst that other masters can do, 
so she will do her very best for Nethys, as she has been thoroughly incentivized, which will include, Ione is very aware that she must think this and believe it as sincerely as she can, being very, very, very obedient to the Chelish government and not inconveniencing them at all, so they don't separate her from Keltham and replace her with an imposter. Time for alternate underscore physics, reduced underscore capital underscore INF, RS structure, autarchical underscore personal underscore prod, activity fantasy asterisk. Keltham exits his room, looking for any sort of local personnel or security personnel who can tell him which people he needs for magic lessons, or failing that, how to find Ione and ask her. He'd ordinarily boop Carissa about that, but Keltham is aware that Carissa herself might also want to nap before tonight even if her day hasn't been as exciting as his. If Keltham doesn't run into any visible security personnel, he will head towards the library to see if he can find somebody there. Asterisk, a ten-syllable recursively compounded term of baseline that a literary author would use to describe the most important quality of Galarian magic from the standpoints of its effect on the plot. Enabling one person to do important things without a huge supply chain. Asterisk, asterisk, or a larger group that implements the effects. Dathilan has separately recognized a fantasy trope for phenomena that treat mental qualities as primary, but their literature doesn't tie up mentalistic magic tightly with economic magic. You can have one without the other. Keltham has noticed that Galerion, magic, is mentalistic. Magic as well as economic, magic, but the economic. Magic aspects are currently much more on his mind. Asterisk, asterisk, literally, supply graph, in baseline, using the inflection of the word graph, which implies that, while ultimately causal and hence a cyclic when unrolled over time, the graph is highly cyclic when its inner time-slice dependencies are projected onto a single time-slice. If you said the literal words supply chain in front of a Dath Ilani, they'd do a double-take and ask what the ass kind of supply graph looks like a chain. About half of the research harem has trickled back into the library. They have their spellbooks out and are negotiating trades of spells now that there's all this spellbook ink available. It's expensive enough that no student has ever had half as much as she wants, but not so expensive that Keltham wouldn't find it deeply weird if his research harem didn't have enough of it. So now they do. Ione is there too, of course. She looks neutral. Nothing she could possibly put on her expression is anything that should be on her expression. Hi, all. So I've been thinking about ways to teach me magic before I get magic goggles, and among my potential stupid ideas is if anybody can both see magic and create a visible illusion that follows whatever magic does. Though, uh, I'm thinking I should try things the completely normal way before I try anything more complicated than that. So what's the normal way of casting one's first spell? The normal way is that you visualize it from the sketches in the textbook and spend a while meditating and trying to get a feel for the fact there's magic at your fingertips. And then you do things with it and get told what happened when you made that motion, and then you try to get it to shape into a cantrip, which often takes weeks, but not always, if you're really smart and have prior exposure to magic. All right, let's try this the most direct possible way. Keltham internally contains a reed magic cantrip, and can feel the structure, which looks the same as the sketches in the textbook. That's useful for the visualization part. 
Keltham will then meditate and try to feel magic at his fingertips, like when he cast resistance and greater detect magic, and the truth spell before he was paying attention, as he holds his hand over a copy of Read Magic built up over somebody else's spellbook. He will try doing things with any magic he thinks he might be feeling, and be told what, if anything, happened when he made a motion. Possible hypotheses to distinguish include Keltham, as a being of Doth, Elon, untouched by gods, will prove to have zero magical aptitude and unable to affect the magic in any way. Seems unlikely if he's a cleric, and cleric spells look the same as wizard spells. A Keltham will have unworkably low wizard aptitude, as a result of coming from a heritage that has never selected on itself at all for facility with wizardry. Kinoik. Keltham, having not come from a heritage in which wizards have had more access to contraception for however many generations, will do great at this. Keltham, having the mighty mental disciplines of Doth Elon at his disposal, and having played a fair number of subtle perceptual computer games, will do great at this, for reasons having nothing to do with genetics. Keltham will make a perfectly normal amount of progress for a Galarianite cleric, with eighteen intelligence and zero prior magical exposure. The first ten minutes of testing will not be enough to distinguish any of these hypotheses, because they're going to initially produce flat failure, and that would have been true for any realistic sort of human being. Keltham can feel magic at his fingertips, same as anyone, when he's touching someone else's spell scaffold. It feels like holding your hand near a flame, except instead of heat, his fingertips report the sensation of being dipped in honey. The first ten minutes do not distinguish any of the other hypotheses because, yeah, you can't get it in ten minutes. I've heard the record is half an hour, says Meritzel. I heard it took Nefredi Klopati an hour. She was eight, though. I think the records are people starting older, like Keltham. Do you know which part of this is? The critical step? The one that's time-bound for most people? Being able to manipulate the magic? Being able to manipulate it predictably? being able to manipulate it precisely, being able to manipulate it fast enough, being able to perceive the magic well enough to change manipulations in response to how the magic is changing, being able to remember the shape. I think closest to being able to perceive it well enough to change manipulations in response to how the magic is changing? Once you're competent with the very, very basics, you end up usually blocked on figuring out the order of operations that lets you build a stable structure and holding it all in your head at once while you execute on it. But I think when you're learning the very basics, the spell's too simple for that to be hard, and you mostly screw up by overcorrecting when it's a little out of line, thinking it's still working when it's not poking it in a bad place because you don't know what's going on, so you're fumbling around. All right, I'll try focusing on perception. Is this a case where the standard advice to just meditate and learn to sense things is as good as it gets, because people tried to tweak the instructions and couldn't get them to work any better? Or should I be trying to apply standard principles like forming hypotheses with my eyes closed, guessing, and opening my eyes to see someone's illusion of what happened? People have tried different ways of teaching it, but they also wouldn't have been trying that hard at making it take an hour rather than five for bright students. Children's time isn't worth very much. My time may not be worth that much either, 
if how fast I learn wizardry isn't a bottleneck on any critical path, which I suspect it won't be. But I'm also standing in a room full of potential experimenters, so like, why not, you know? Is my clever idea of an illusion trick something we can try? Oh, language note. The baseline idiom for clever idea carries the connotation that clever ideas often aren't. I would say brilliant idea to carry that connotation, Meritzel says. There's no reason not to try the illusion, but we can't see magic and maintain a separate spell at the same time. We'd just have to show you after the fact. Sounds like it'd burn through illusion spells fast, if you lost the illusion spell each time you used the detect magic cantrip again. How many illusion spells here do we have prepped that y'all have spare to spend on brilliant ideas? Most of the students have an illusion spell prepped, and some have two, which amounts to twelve of them. All right, let's plan to only spend half of those twelve in case I've got even more brilliant ideas later. Let's try cycle one of that, attempted manipulation, followed by perception. Meritzel, you're up first. Carissa remembers to slow down and take a deep breath before she rounds the corner that leads to the library. If she comes running in looking like something intensely confusing and life-changing just happens, then, if she were the kind of person who even might do that, then Asmodeus would have had nothing to say to her. She slows down and rounds the corner at the brisk walk of someone who is late, but doesn't mind that much, but does intend to get where she's going. If Carissa had come from another place, a place with wristwatches where people more commonly check the time, she might have realized that in just a few more minutes, it would be exactly the same time of day as when she had first run into Keltham, yesterday, at the World Wound. And she might have worried that not enough interesting things had happened to her over the last 24 hours. Just coming out of invisibility, heading away from the library, are a man and a woman. The man is pale, thin, tall, clad in simple tight black robes with red trim, with a magical-looking mace belted at his side. He wears a cheerful, joking grin, the sort that might seem genuinely humorous to anyone outside of Cheliax, who had never been to Cheliax or met anyone from Cheliax. He's attractive in a way that requires at least 18 charisma, and radiates a dark male magnetism which promises that while this man will definitely kill you once he's finished with you, he will show you quite a good time first. Beside him is a taller and paler and older woman in elaborate layered dress, black with wide red fringes and tassels, themselves ornamented in gold and rubies, with a horned crown on her head, wrought of twisted platinum. She is identifiable to any informed Chelish citizen as a personage second only to her infernal magistrix, Abrogale Thrune II, on the list of people who could have everyone in this building killed on a whim, Aspexia Rugaton, the Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus. Carissa kneels immediately before she has actually thought all the way through questions like, what is she doing here, and what am I doing here, and... Am I sure that's her? And did she talk to Keltham? Which seems like the kind of thing that would have been a disaster. But she must be here to talk to Keltham. Why else? Well, maybe just to lay the forbiddance. Forbiddance is permanent and can only be dispelled by a more powerful caster, which is to say, if the Grand High Priestess Aspexia Rugaton cast it, that it can't be. Carissa has recently concluded that she needs to get more ambitious, that being small isn't safe anymore, 
but she still dearly hopes as she kneels that Grand High Priestess Aspexia Rugaton's business here has absolutely nothing to do with her. Aspexia Rugaton, easy to steer. Yerwain Aspexia Rugaton, Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus, measures the woman kneeling before her with a careful eye and a half-dozen magics. If Carissa Savar is an exceptional woman in ways beyond a native talent for wizardry, this is not yet evident. But then if Savar was that self-evidently extraordinary, she'd have been fast-tracked more than she was. There are not many times when Asmodeus intervenes directly in Cheliacs. Aspexia prefers not to be ignorant about any of them. She is knowledgeable of history and secrets, though, and so less confused by this intervention than others might be. While other possible readings exist, the degree to which Church and Queen have been ordered not to take the initiative in originating actions, impinging on Carissa Sever, are suggestive of circumstances having triggered some divine compact to which Asmodeus is signatory. The divine view of reality and negotiation gives more prominence than mortals do to notions of leaving things alone to become as they would otherwise have been, perhaps because gods have been able to formulate a sensible notion of what that means between themselves where mortals could not. An obvious further guess is that this compact's signatories include Irori among their number, and that Asmodeus is contesting with Irori for Carissa Sivar's soul in some ancient challenge governed by rules. Though if Carissa Sivar is wavering between lawful neutrality and lawful evil, Asmodeus is being unsubtle in his blandishments. The temptations more seem like inducements that would be offered to a soul already standing on Asmodean ground. Not a soul wavering between a choice of paths, overt blandishments for a soul to set proudly aside, while being more covertly tempted by a sense of being treated as important and valuable? Perhaps. Carissa Savar's eidetically reported reaction seems not particularly expected of a nascent follower of Irori, but that could be a masquerade. Savar has not been mindraid more than she would be otherwise. They are not to be proactive about her correction. Someone else in Aspexia's position might wonder whether Asmodeus would be pleased if she disobeyed Asmodeus's orders in order to preemptively insinuate temptations to Sevar, show her how important she could be, before Sevar had sought out theological instruction of her own accord. Such actions on a mortal's initiative would not, could not, cause Asmodeus to be in direct violation of divine compact. Aspexia does not even consider it. One of the foremost ways in which a Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus is shaped is to predictably not behave in ways that make it more expensive for Asmodeus to keep his compacts. Improvising circles around your orders can rather tend to do that. If Aspexia was the kind of priestess to circumvent her orders, Asmodeus would have needed to take that nature into account in choosing her orders. More importantly, when you are Asmodeus's priestess, the first and foremost thing you do is what Asmodeus has told you to do. In the situation as Aspexia Rogaton mostly suspects it to be, a contest triggered between Asmodeus and Irori, there are many words that could be spoken to Carissa Savar to benefit Asmodeus. 
there is a beastly, fleshly impulse that wants to find some excuse to maneuver Carissa into asking for instruction, to arrange the situation so that Carissa Sever chooses to seek her descent into darkness, to win herself the challenge against Irori, to Asmodeus's glory. There is not the slightest chance that Aspexia Rugaton will skirt the rules to try any of that. She's been told not to be proactive, and that is a plain instruction. Hands off, don't speak to Sevar unless spoken to. Sivar is to cast aside her own will and not have it stripped from her. One of the many glorious benefits of being an Asmodean is that you can just follow orders. There are also other possibilities for why her lord would have instructed them so. Sevar's soul may have had hidden value great enough that trying to exchange it for permanent arcane sight would have been too unbalanced a trade and failed. And Asmodeus may not have wished this fact revealed to Sevar herself. Or Asmodeus may have some incomprehensible preference about this particular soul. It may have some ancient shape sentimental to him. For which reason Asmodeus desires Carissa Sevar to come to him in hell and put aside her will of her own accord. There may be some benign process underway which would be interfered with by Sevar gaining arcane sight, and interfered with by other actions natural to chelish agencies, which Asmodeus desires to be left alone to proceed to its foreseeable outcome. Or, there may be many things going on at once, many pots that Asmodeus has in the fire, that his orders impact simultaneously. By simply obeying her orders and not improvising, Aspexia can avoid interfering with her lord's plans in any of those cases. Some of the apparent confusion of these orders may be due to how hell rendered down Asmodeus's will into words. Asmodeus's thoughts are too great for mortals to know, and reflect truths unspeakable in this world under divine compacts. Having those thoughts pass through a succession of devils, each younger and stupider and less bound by the compacts than the last, does not in any way surpass this fundamental barrier between start and finish. And if this were not so, all of Asmodeus's instructions would be passed by way of hell. Then, any process by which hell tries to translate Asmodeus's thoughts into mortal language must inevitably change, and indeed, mutilate those thoughts. There are both advantages and disadvantages of that process compared to a direct divine revelation. On the one hand, there are wiser devils in hell to oversee the initial stages of translation. But on the other hand, by the time the final words are heard, they are stripped of other overtones that mortals could hear directly in a god's voice. An apparently important subtlety of hell's phrasing, seemingly key to a puzzle, may stem only from some devil phrasing something poorly and not foreseeing what a mortal would make of it. This is yet another reason to just follow Hell's commands without trying to brilliantly improvise around the fine edges of their exact details. When Hell has interpreted Asmodeus's will into mortal language, the command's edges may not have been placed that finely. Aspexia Rugaton has gotten this far in life by combining the executive capacity to manage fractious subordinates, plus great initiative and independence and ambition of her own, plus the cruel and tyrannical disposition to be a priestess of Asmodeus, 
with a genuinely intuitive understanding of why it can sometimes be a good idea to just follow your orders. Her ascendance to the peak of Asmodeus's church can be seen as inevitable, since there's only a billion or so people in Galarian, and it is unlikely enough that even a single person like Aspexia Rugaton came to exist there, let alone two. She worries about what will happen to her carefully crafted church after she dies. Oh, and there's also the fact that this entire affair has now been the subject of two direct interventions of Asmodeus, four cleric circles bestowed from Abadar, two oracle circles from Nethys, possibly something to do with Irori, and two oracle circles from yet another unidentified lawful neutral god still under investigation. In retrospect, Aspexia really should have put up the forbiddance first thing in the morning, no matter what else was on her schedule. It would be genuinely arrogant, under those circumstances, for Aspexia to imagine that she knows precisely what is going on and can plan precise dances around it. Thankfully, in this case, Asmodeus has given her orders, by way of hell, which she can follow. So Aspexia knows exactly, indeed, trivially, what she plans to say to Sevar. Aspexia plans to say what Asmodeus's orders call for her to say. The man speaks. Carissa Sivar, I am Rathus Retarian, Paraduke under her infernal magistrix. If and only if you are not urgently about our lord's other business, the Most High bids you walk with myself and her, while she goes about casting a forbiddance upon this place. If you have theological questions, do not speak them to her. The Most High would not usually be the one to instruct a fourth-circle cleric, which is the precise fashion in which our Lord has commanded us to treat you. And as the Most High has approached you here, such instruction would not be sought of your own accord, as Asmodeus has also commanded us regarding you. Carissa stands and falls in behind the both of them, and is slightly impressed with herself for managing to do even that gracefully. Internally, she is shaking. She wonders if there is a fashion of instructing students that imbues them with sufficient awe in their superiors without leaving them somewhat debilitatingly terrified in their actual presence. Perhaps awe and terror go together inevitably, but if any place had decoupled them, Dath Ilan would have. And Keltham wasn't frightened by Contessa Lurlatha, though objectively speaking he should have been, and perhaps that was just an error. Who would ordinarily instruct a fourth-circle cleric? She asks the man once she's sure that her voice will convey at least no less dignity than an average chelish wizard manages. A fifth-circle cleric or higher, depending on the question. The senior cleric stationed here should suffice for many such. There are questions that would naturally be referred from them to the Most High. A slight hesitation. But I should not, I think, attempt to insinuate what those questions would be, while you stand in the Most High's presence not sought of your own accord. You might be led into asking those questions, and that would constitute our being proactive, which our Lord has been very clear we should not be. I believe that I should come quickly to our business here, Sivar, and reduce my risks of accidentally being proactive. Aspexia Rugaton strides briskly ahead of both of them, but not fast enough that it would be strenuous for the other two to follow. It's plausible that she intends to make a quick circuit of the entire grounds, perhaps for purposes of forbiddance. Carissa keeps pace. It 
seems likely that she is being reprimanded? If she had been proactive and sought out the senior cleric stationed here, then Asmodeus could have delivered whatever instruction he intended. Except he could do that anyway, right? Well, he said to seek it out proactively, and she hasn't done that yet. So if it's a test she failed, which is terrifying, except also it has been less than an hour and she spent the entire time reflecting on what questions she was going to ask so as to do the job properly. She's not complaining, even internally, that it is unfair for her to have failed the test. The test is whether she's useful or not, and there's no fairness in that. No one shopping at the market and picking over vegetables, leaving out the bruised ones, worries that those ones aren't getting a fair shot. But it seems like the test isn't necessarily discriminating very well if spending an hour thinking through what you're going to ask before asking is failing it. So possibly she is. Not being reprimanded? Evidence for this theory. She isn't in even a little bit of pain. Possibly she is just being because it's very unlikely that the offer to walk with Aspexia rugatone was extended without specific intent, reminded of what it means to be raised high in this world by Asmodeus, reminded of what she has been offered if she is good enough. And possibly she is being evaluated. Actually, that shouldn't have come to mind third. Asmodeus bothered with her. This is confusing. Possibly it is confusing even to Aspexia rugatone, and she wants to know whether it is some specific feature of Carissa as a person which prompted the offer or whether it was, effectively, offered to the girl who got in with Keltham fastest, on the assumption all of them would be minimally competent from there. That doesn't quite fit, but she doesn't have a better theory to replace it with. Well, if it was something specific about Carissa, the only thing she can think of— the only thing that felt like a thought pattern no one else in Cheliax had thought before was the question she was puzzling over during Keltham's lesson about how to reconcile Dathilan's teachings of law and chaos and heredity and humans having been copied rather than created and what free will is. Her going interpretation, she thinks vaguely, of Asmodeus's message was that she was being too lawful neutral— she was going to reconstruct it all and arrive at the wrong place. She is grateful for the warning and intends to take it to heart and won't try again until she's better at evil. But presumably Asmodeus wouldn't have said anything just to save her from becoming a heretic and dying of it, so it must be important, in some way outside her. Maybe, if she gets it right, she can convince Keltham. That's probably her top guess, if she had to name one. What's confusing about it? What's the strongest argument against it? Well, if a really good theologian was projected to succeed at convincing Keltham, they'd have gotten a theologian in to do it. That's a little confusing. First, I am to deliver this copy from the eidetic memory of Elias Abarco of The Complete Event. It includes Elias Abarco's report of the precise words of all instructions from hell. Any clear errors or omissions in Elias's report which appear to you are extremely serious affairs and are to be reported to us at once. If you are doubtful, report your doubts accurately, and magic to clarify your memory will be provided you. Once you touch this paper, it will become readable only by you, barring great magics. Report nonetheless, if it is stolen— or, as a clever spy might arrange, apparently lost due to your own carelessness, 
under very embarrassing circumstances that you are sorely tempted to keep secret. It may be destroyed by burning at your own discretion, though I would suggest being very certain you have perfectly memorized Hell's conveyed instructions before doing so. Paraduke Rathus Ratarian hands Carissa a paper written in very precise, very clear handwriting, containing to all appearances a complete and accurate transcript of the entire event, including the part where she threatened to eat the devil's heart and everything she said to Elias Abarco afterwards about wanting to be pretty and the rest of that. The thing she's tempted to say is, thank you, as if it's a favor. She restrains herself. It is a very valuable thing to her, but that's got nothing to do with why it was handed to her. This is sacred material, a communication very distantly from Asmodeus himself, and it ought to be correct, as their duty to him. She reads through it. This matches my recollection on a first review. Good. There remains, then, the matter of your first set of requests for Chelish state support in your indulgences, a matter in which I have been deemed the person best suited to make decisions. I have come to a preliminary decision on all of your requests here. Carissa glances back down at the paper to be entirely sure what she said. I'm going to need to be prettier. Every Count's heir I've ever seen was stunningly beautiful. Don't you dare comment on my looks. I'll stab you. I'm going to need to be prettier, and I want a headband and an allowance for crafting. I don't actually know how much the inheriting daughter of a count of, I mean, presumably they get their allowance from their county, which you haven't got. Well, maybe you should get me one. Is this what gratitude for the extraordinary indulgence of your god looks like? Gratitude? He wants a return, and I'm going to be perfect. Can I have the other girl's souls? Wow, she really did say that. She's still not in pain, so she's going to conclude she doesn't regret it at all. Yet. They are now outside and circling briskly about the grounds, paths through moderately pretty gardens with an unusual number of red and black flowers, going to near where fences and defenses begin. Aspexia is frowning, not at Carissa, but with a surveyor's eye, suggesting that she is considering where to place the borders of her forbiddance in a place convenient to moving some of the defenses inward. The Paraduke continues speaking. There exists a tension between two elements of Hell's interpretation given to us of Asmodeus's will, which is a hazard of Hell interpreting and distorting Asmodeus's will into such commands as may be spoken in language to mortals. We are, on the one hand, to reward you no less and no more than you have earned under Asmodeus's law. On the other hand, to support you as though you were an inheriting daughter of a countess, if you seek to indulge. Interpreting and resolving such tensions, in Asmodeus's direct interventions conveyed by way of hell, is ordinarily business of the most high Aspexia Rugaton. It is in this capacity that she is overseeing my own interactions with you now, in case I make any errors in my interpretation, while she had other business about this place. To all appearances, Paraduke Rathus Ratarian seems entirely unbothered by the prospect of needing to execute confusing instructions from Asmodeus by way of hell, with the Grand High Priestess of Asmodeus watching him, in case he requires correction. Perhaps he is, in fact, unbothered by it. This is unlikely to be among the hundred most stressful days of his life. The Most High currently believes we are to resolve the tension in our instructions thus, 
reason as if you were the inheriting daughter of a Count of Cheliacs, and decide your requests as though we were being asked, what treatment of an inheriting daughter would be a matter of concern, according to the principles of her infernal majestrix's reign? In regards to your request to seem more comely, if an heiress of a count was being forced to grow up with an ordinary appearance, it would be a non-Asmodean behavior of small but noticeable concern to church and queen. If the pattern was repeated, or if it was done with deliberate attempt to prevent that heiress from indulging in vanity, it would become a matter of greater concern. In such an event, I, Paraduque Rathus Retarion, minister over the Asmodean culture of the nobility under her infernal magistrix, would be dispatched by the magistrix to speak to this hypothetical count, inquire into any hidden reasons, and perhaps suggest a correction. In this case, the count in question does not exist, and so the count may be considered to have mounted no counter-argument and yielded the issue. This statement is accompanied very briefly by that humorous grin which might look genuine to anyone who'd never been to Cheliax. A wizard potion-maker pair that has recently treated county heiresses has been located, and you will be conveyed there tomorrow for your first treatment. After dinner time tomorrow, which, given your reported schedule, seemed least likely to cause you to miss any important lectures from the person that Hell referred to as your teacher. Despite the general importance and urgency of obeying Asmodeus's commands, I ruled out having it done at once, since the inheriting daughter of a count would not have someone else's appointment cancelled for her to accommodate her the same day as she made the request. I will not ask if this is to your satisfaction, as a county heiress would not be so asked by myself. Nor is it appropriate for you to express gratitude towards me. I am not granting you favors. I am conversing with a hypothetical parent of yours, regarding which indulgences are deemed a positive sign in a young Asmodean noble, and her infernal magistrate's state is then acting in that absent count's capacity, using such resources as a count would allocate. If any of this process and reasoning seems less than completely understandable to you, speak now, as it concerns Asmodeus's commands, and hence is of great importance to clarify. I may not be present here in person to interact with you in the future. See, they are more like Keltham than normal people. They'd make more sense to him. Contessa Lorelatha did, but she was trying to, so that wasn't much evidence, but this man too would make sense to Keltham. There is a truth that both of them are climbing towards. Only Dathilan doesn't have gods to guide them towards it and does have a billion people with an average INT of 18 working on it. To Keltham, she would say... I think I understand, because she suspects Keltham values apparent effort towards acknowledging her own errancy, towards admitting that this is not the sort of set of sentences which one would rightly be perfectly sure they understand, but this is Cheliac's. Her errancy is accounted for. I understand, she says, only because it's quicker than the pause he'd give for her to admit confusions if she had any. After careful consideration, I have made a preliminary ruling that your request for an intelligence-increasing headband, and for a crafting allowance, seems to me to come less under the heading of a desire to indulge in Asmodean behavior befitting young nobility, and more under the heading of your requesting a reward not yet earned. If the inheriting daughter of a count were told to produce results meriting an intelligence headband and crafting allowance, or else go without, the church and queen would not object." 
I would not hand you title to the souls of your rival women even if I could. While the goal is laudably Asmodean, it is not one which should be immediately satisfied and accounts heiress as an indulgence. It would be more proper for her parent to instruct her to triumph over her rivals herself. The request for a county is intriguing, and perhaps even arguably indulgent. But it seems to stretch the interpretation of the wording for prioritizing you as if you were an heiress, and to be too much of an unearned reward. While it was an admirably Asmodean ploy, I put forth on behalf of her infernal magistrates, and the Most High agreed, that if such had been our Lord's true will, Hell's interpretation would have said to make you an heiress, not to prioritize your support as though you were one. We were sensible, of course, that you were likely just teasing poor Elias with that request, but Asmodeus's orders to us do not actually say that it matters. Another cheerful-appearing, humorous-appearing smile, which vanishes just as quickly as before. You will receive by tomorrow's evening a lightly enchanted dueling dagger, whose wounds heal more easily but which causes greater pain. It will be simple in style, but suitable for a count's heiress to carry, and would be appropriate for her to use to stab somebody who commented on her appearance. You are permitted to argue these preliminary rulings, especially by reference to implications of Asmodeus's interpreted instructions, which I may have failed to comprehend. Do you wish to do so? No. She is not very surprised to learn that she cannot have a headband, a crafting allowance, a county, and the souls of her rivals just because Asmodeus said, something that got translated down as, that she should be somewhat indulged. How should I make my requests of the Cheliac's government acting in the stead of my count in the future? This location reports daily to both church and crown, or is intended to do so, once it has stopped generating an additional top urgency report every hour, as presently seems to be the case. If your request is not more urgent than that, which accounts heirs' request ordinarily would not be, there should be a cleric on site who is responsible for maintaining communication. Direct your messages to them, or have a report delivered to them, for forwarding to my own office. Nod. The other girls, who sell their souls, are going to have permanent arcane sight. It would be unsuitable, I think, for a Count's inheriting daughter to be studying magic with a peer group, all of whom had such a substantial advantage she did not. The man smiles drolly. Hardly an indulgence in darkness, Sever. It also seems unwise for us to attempt to undo one of the most direct effects of our Lord's unexplained actions. It is possible that a critical point in this entire affair is that everyone with arcane sight here will be fooled by some trick or illusion, which only you will successfully resist. Though that is less probable today than it would have been historically, when prophecy was unbroken and the gods' commands more often had such effects. And if you do enough to merit the loan of an item enchanted for magical detection or arcane sight, it will be loaned to you as Asmodeus commanded us to reward you no less than you had earned. The Most High is fond of regularly pointing out how much our lives can be simplified by just following Asmodeus's commands precisely. They've completed the circuit of the villa. The Grand High Priestess halts her strides and makes a silencing gesture, then takes an incense burner out of her dress's folds, followed by enough incense that, 
if you have any sense for the grade of incense she's using, it is going to constitute a significant part of the Chelish government's expenses for today. From a wizard's perspective, this cleric spell takes her a shockingly short time to cast for a ritual of that expense and permanent effect. It's over in less than a minute, an extremely smoky and fragrant one. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.